Well, have you ever been in a situation um, where sorry just wasn't good enough? It might have been um, yourself who needed to say sorry, or it might have been someone else. Um, Whether the restoration of the relationship required more than just the words of someone saying sorry. One of the things I keep saying sorry about to Sarah is actually finishing work on time. I continually say, look, oh, yep, I'll definitely be ready by five so that you can have time. I can come look after the kids, bath them, help them. And what will happen is at about 10 to 5, I'll get a phone call. Or I'll just be like, oh, there's just one more thing I need to do. And I, and I push it. And then I'm like, oh, it's quarter past or it's half past. And I come out and I'm like, oh, sorry, Sarah. I didn't even set the time. But I've, after a while, started to get this feeling that sorry's not really good enough, really. <laughs> Um, it's just kind of, you've actually got to make a change, right? Words without action are useless. The, the, you can talk the talk, but unless you're walking the walk, well, it doesn't really mean much at all. As we hit this next episode of Jonah, chapter 3, um, you're left wondering, was Jonah really sorry? Now, how sorry was he? He's been in the belly of a whale or a fish uh, three days. He prays this great prayer of kind of, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. You're such a great God. And the whale vomits him up. Now, I don't know whether it was a great prayer or God's kind of going, whatever. We'll have to wait till next week to find out really what Jonah's heart was like. But the question is, was Jonah sorry? Most of us know the story. He'd been told to go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, to the wild brutes. These guys who literally wore the heads of their enemies on chains around their neck as kind of bling. That's what this nation did. And Jonah was told, by God, go there and preach the message, I'll tell you. So you can understand why he ran. He did exactly the opposite. He ran away. He goes on a boat, gets thrown overboard. There's a massive sea taken by the whale. I'm sorry. Well, miraculously, the Jonah that we meet in this passage gets an unlikely ending. That's why this story is such an unlikely story. As this fish vomits him up onto the, onto the sand, apparently it was right next to a sign that said Nineveh. <laughs> this fish kind of sets him back on his track, and we get to 3, chapter 1. Ch- chapter 1, verse 3. Hang on, I'm going to start again. Chapter 3, verse 1. There we go. Um, it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. And there's this bit of deja vu about the whole passage. In fact, those words are almost exactly the same words that Jonah heard in chapter 1. Nothing's changed, but has Jonah changed? Well, instead of running, we meet a reformed Jonah. A guy who's maybe learned his lesson. Three days in the belly of fish of a fish seems to have shaken him a little put him on a, on, a, on a new path and given him some sense. Verse 3, you've got your Bibles there. So Jonah got up, went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's command. <sighs> Finally. He did what he should have done in the first place. He knew he should have listened to God. That's why he ran. But he didn't. He didn't listen to God. I think what we kind of see here is that there's a huge difference between knowing the truth and obeying the truth. There's a huge difference between knowing what's right and doing what's right. All the things Jonah said when he was inside the fish 
were things that he knew before he was in the future. It's not like he suddenly had some revelation. He was God's prophet, remember. God's prophet in, in the inner sanctum of, of um, Israel. He was right amongst all the high guys. They kind of would have been a counselor to the, the governor. He would have been right up there of this nation-state Israel who worshipped the true and living God. He knew about God. But it still didn't stop him from running away. I don't know how often I know about God, but I still do things, or I still have an attitude in my heart that wants to run away. Which when I think about the power of God is crazy. Some of you here may not accept God as the true and living ruler of the world, and you might be running. You might say he doesn't exist, and that's fine. We love having people here who aren't necessarily in agreement with what the Bible says. But we want to hold out to you that this God actually might be the God who made the world. And he might be holding out something that's a little more unlikely than what you think. Do you find yourself having a difference between what you know and what you do? when it comes to the things of God. Well, the Jonah we meet now seems different. The stuff he knows becomes the stuff he does. After a few trip tips from the Lonely Planet Guide, I don't know if you saw that, uh, in, in verse, verse 3, um, Nineveh, you kind of hear a little bit about Nineveh. Jonah's kind of preparing. Like, he's got the Lonely Planet Guide to Nineveh. I don't know if, Dan, you wrote any of that, or, or maybe your ancestors did. But apparently it takes three days to walk across the city. That's a big sea. Lonely Planet Guide says if you're backpacking, make sure you allow three days for Nineveh. It's, it's pretty large. There's lots of people there to see all the, all the, get around all the people. You're probably there a fair bit of time. So Jonah in verse 4 sets off and proclaims the message. Now, up until this point, we don't know what the message was. We've never been told, and I'm not even sure if Jonah had been told, but I think he had a gut feeling. Here's the message, verse 4. Seven words. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now you've got to remember, Nineveh was the kind of capital of Assyria on the east bank of the Tigris. This is the place where the kind of the government was. And, and apparently the city uh, was 20 miles long, 12 miles deep, surrounded by huge walls, 100 feet high. There were 1,500 towers around the perimeter of this ginormous city that were 200 feet high each tower. You get the picture of strength, right? Of a nation that is powerful and strong and will protect their borders. And anyone who comes near them and says anything against them will find out the wrath of Nineveh. Jonah's standing there smack bang in the middle of Nineveh. Day one, and he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's a pretty scary thing to say, don't you reckon? I mean, just rock up out there and go, in 40 days, Auckland will be demolished. There's a few problems with doing that. One, it's probably not true. Um, God hasn't told me that. I don't know if he's told you that. But, I, you know, it says no one will know the day or the hour. But hey, he might. But if God did tell you that and you went out there, people would just probably think you're a crackpot. But imagine you walked into the middle of Hitler's camp. And you cried out, in 40 days, Hitler, you'll be dead. How do you reckon that's going to go? Not good, right? Well, here's the first surprise in this unlikely story. The Ninevites believe God. It's like, what? These people 
these, these ugly brutes who hate Israel, they hear these seven words and they fall down on their knees. The men of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The whole nation fell on their knees and cried out to the God begging for mercy. Now here's the thing for me. I don't know about you when you're talking about Jesus or talking about uh, what the Bible says, but so often I feel like the world around me doesn't want to know and in fact, saying it is probably not, not useful, so I don't say anything. I usually keep my mouth shut because, well, deep down, I probably think that there are some people that are just too far gone for God. You ever had that feeling? Where you're like, ah, uh, they, they, they're not the type of person that would become a Christian. They're not the type of person that's kind of religious. They don't like that sort of stuff. And so you kind of pull back on what you say and you end, you end up putting yourself in a position where... Um, not, not only do you not say what's true, but sometimes you start agreeing with a worldview that's actually contrary to your own. You feel that pull? That kind of... What God shows is there is no one too far gone for his love. There is no one. That there's nothing that you can do that is too much for God to forgive. I've got to get this in my head. There is no one or nothing that is too much for God to forgive. No matter what you've done, or what your friend has done, or what you haven't done, no matter what guilt's float around in your head, those things that you hold to say, no, that's too bad for God. These guys were the pinnacle of rebellion against God. Seven little words, and God brings them to their knees. And that's what he did with us, isn't it? with those who do believe. It's not that we were the type of person that was kind of, you know, likely to become a Christian. Our hearts, as we look at them, really, well, Genesis 6 says, are only evil all the time. If you're just left to our own devices, we, we want to push God aside and live the way we want to live. But God brought us to our knees. And if you haven't understood the great love of God yet, well, I have to show you in a little bit just how loving he is. It got me thinking. If God can use seven words to bring the most hateful nation down to its knees, what would it take for Auckland? Like, what would it take for this city to repent, to turn their backs on their own ways and come and trust the God of the Bible, the God who made them? What would it take to bring revival? In, in Auckland today, the numbers of Christians are tiny in comparison. We might look around and go, oh, look, there's great things happening. And there is. God has always got his people. But imagine a whole city. Imagine. Does God want it? Yes. He wills that all will be saved. I would love to see revival. Not only in the hearts of individuals, but in a city, a country. It got me thinking, what are the ingredients of revival? Like, what do we pray for if we want to see people come to know Jesus? What, what do we do? Well, the biggest revival in the Bible is here in Nineveh. And what we see is the ingredients of revival on the grand scale are the same as the ingredients for revival in my heart and yours. 
The whole book of Jonah is about a God who loves his people. He loves the city. He wants to see them come back to him. If we long for revival in our own city, in our own friends' lives, in our own life, what will we be praying? Well, I think there's three things necessary. Kind of points on your outline if you're following. Three things that are necessary to see revival. Number one, the messenger was obedient. The messenger was obedient. Chapter one, we see this reluctant messenger, this guy who's gone to speak the word of God, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't speak it. Part of his obedience was taking God's authority with him to a new country. And we see in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah, verse 3, obeyed the word of the Lord. God's word changes lives. God's word changes lives. So often we're like, oh, as if that'll do anything, I've got to convince people into the kingdom. Jonah says seven words, and they're God's words, and they're powerful. And unless people speak God's word, I can't see how we'll come to know you. We've got to remember that to speak um, in any way, in private conversations or in public to great crowds, if we're trying to convince people into the kingdom, that's not going to work by our own strength. You can't muscle someone to believe that God is true. That's wrong. (coughs) But God brings words to the deaf. He gives sight to the blind. Without the persuasive power of the Spirit of God working through His Word, no one will come to know Him. God's Spirit is massively important. He's the one who takes this Word and applies it in in their hearts, applies it in our hearts. He's the one who convicts us and changes us, makes the Word come alive. The Spirit and the Word, they're like, I don't know, together. (laughs) They're not like chalk and cheese. What's the opposite? I don't know. I'd say bread and Vegemite, but you guys probably hate that. Um, the, the Word and the Spirit work together to make people see God. And you know what? Jesus has authorized the disciples in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. He said, go. The command's been given to the disciples, and that's how we believe, is because people told us about Jesus. And God's Spirit convicted us of that. Jonah went with God's command. He went with God's authority. And friends, that is what we have. Not amazingly powerful knowledge or intellect. Not fancy arguments that's going to win everyone down. It's worth being wise in the way we speak. Don't don't let me kind of disagree with that. But with the Word of God that works by the Spirit. So as we think through a kind of small little church that's only been going just under a year, kind of meeting together, Will we speak God's word? Will we let God work through his word, by his spirit? Even amongst those we think are too far off. Will will I speak to my neighbours? I'm a shocker. I don't know why I haven't kind of... I don't even invite them to the launch yet. Ask me next week if I've invited them to the launch. There you go. Will we let God speak? Well, this Jonah went with a message. Verse 2, proclaim the message I give you. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah was instructed what to say on behalf of God, just as Jesus' disciples were instructed to teach what he commanded. And the thing is, 
we're not at liberty to change the message. Jonah couldn't rock out and say, kind of, all right, everyone, um, you should kind of start being a little bit better or God might get really angry. Kind of water it down a little. Might not have got him in as much trouble. No, he's told to go and speak 40 days and... And that's the same kind of temptation we feel, isn't it? To water down God's word. It's unpopular to speak of the wrath of God or a God who is angry or a God who judges. Who wants to know a God who judges? Judges is a bit ugh. You know, I don't want to hear about judgment. But I want to say there comes a time when we need to say to our friends and family, I'm not saying we go out and do this straight away, but we need to say to our friends and family who don't yet know Jesus, or for those here who don't yet know Jesus, if you continue that way, the God of the Bible says you're on a pathway to hell. You're actually going to get what you want, life without God. Separation from God's goodness. That's the future that I deserve. And the future we all deserve for turning our backs on Him. That's exactly what Dan did with his mother-in-law. After a long time of trying to explain the great gift God has given and how amazing it is that God loves us, he holds out, and you know what? This is true as well. You've broken these laws. You're not perfect. And she turns. God brings her to her knees, and now she's a believer. Not out of just fear of God, but out of the reality of what she's asking for. Life without him. And I was thinking about warnings, Right? Some warnings are good, like wrong way, go back. That sign to, on the motorway when you're driving, and it's like wrong way, go back. If you go on the wrong way, you're going to get smashed, right? You get to, that's a good sign. I like that sign. Or, or the, the signs are on, on kids kind of play stuff, warning choking hazard. Do not put plastic bag over child's head. You're like, right, got it. Look pretty cool to be a spaceman, but they probably can't breathe. But helpful warnings. Um, there are warnings all over the place in society that are so helpful. And it's the same reason God warns us and tells us of His judgment. It's that He loves us passionately. He's not some cold-hearted, vengeful, I just want to get rid of you, I hate you. God loves His people so passionately that He speaks. He doesn't want us to get what we deserve. Just imagine for a moment, this is a made-up scenario. But just imagine there, there are three people, three cancer patients, and they go into the doctor um, to get the kind of final verdict on, on, on what's happened. They've had some scans. Now, the doctor comes out and says to all three of them, I'm sorry, the x-rays show that you've got some serious problems. Uh, the growths within all three of you have grown, and we need to take action very quickly if we're going to have any hope of survival. The first one kind of stands up and says, how dare you criticize my body? How dare you criticize the way my body's growing? You, what right do you have to tell me the way what's, what's wrong or right with me? And walks out. Second one is appalled. He sits there and says, how dare you use your position of authority, your position as a doctor, to kind of, you know, make me feel bad about myself. You're supposed to make me feel good. I don't feel good. How dare you make me feel bad about who I am and what I've done and, and, and what is actually wrong with my, my body at the moment. The third sits there looking stunned. After a moment of reflecting on massive news, 
says, I'm actually shocked to hear I'm in that much trouble. I thought my life was fine. I thought everything was good. But you've seen what's inside me, and you're the specialist. So maybe you ought to tell me what we can do about getting this right. Friends, that's what we need to explain to our friends. The God of the Bible passionately loves them. He passionately loves us and wants us to be right. Wants us to be rid of our own hearts that turn our backs on Him so often. But we need to hear that bad news, don't we? Nineveh needed to hear the reality of their rebellion against God. The reality of their ugliness, of living in a life rebellion against the creator of the universe. And so do we. So that's part of God's good news. The good news comes mixed with, oh, there's some things that aren't right. It kind of struck me that as I've kind of had a look at some of the revivals that have happened over the past three or four hundred years, um, some of them in the UK where you see guys like Wesley and Whitfield preaching, um, Charles Spurgeon, to, to like 50,000 people with just their bare voice, and so many turn, and you think, wow, a real revival is going on here. And you look at what they were saying, it's very striking that the preachers and teachers spoke not only of Jesus and the great love he has shown, but also the dangers of hell. We don't do it much today. I don't mean we should go out and just speak fire and brimstone and kind of just kind of say all these horrible things about what's in front of people. But I mean the theology. So many churches, people, myself included, just want to pull back from God's judgment. One of the most um, effective, well-known sermons throughout history of mankind is a sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by a guy called Jonathan Edwards. Um, he was preaching on Deuteronomy 32 in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. One commentator said, The people of Enfield yelled and shrieked. They rolled in the aisles through the night. There was great mourning and crying. Throughout the whole place, shrieks and cries were piercing. The cries of forgiveness. When you read the sermon that, that, um, that Edwards had, had said, you kind of couldn't use it today, but I want to read some of it to you for a second and just hear this was at the heart of the great revivals of the Puritans. It's in a bit of old language, but we'll get the idea. Thus it is that the natural man are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. They have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. Or again on the next page. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapidly and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose, it's true. The judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. 
The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is consistently increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are consistently rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds those waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. If your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yes, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, there would be nothing to withstand or endure The gospel of God includes judgment. It includes us speaking of this, and that's what Jonah spoke. I want to encourage us to not speak in such a way as to go around preaching fire and brimstone, but don't skimp on the warning. Wrong way, go back. Don't tell people they're fine when all of us have got cancer. Don't say there's nothing wrong with the world when in reality there is. Well, the second thing of true revival we see is genuine repentance. Verses 5 to 9, we see it there, that these Ninevites have faith in the message and they repent, that they actually change their mind. The Ninevites believed God, they took him at his word and they trusted him. In 1 Thessalonians, this is the same thing that Paul speaks of. It's on the screen, have a look. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, the apostles, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. True revival has people accepting the word of God as the word of God and trusting him. And not just hearing it, not just saying, yes, I acknowledge it's true, but actually turning Repentance. Repentance is kind of like a change of mind. The Greek word metanoia is actually literally change of mind, like from metamorphosis. That's where it comes from. And, and so the idea of repenting is what they do. They were going one direction, serving themselves, walking this way, saying, I don't care about God. I'm just going to keep serving me. And they recognized their need and they turned. They turned to the living God, the God they've been running away from. The God they've been saying, I want nothing to do with and they went back to him and said, please have mercy on us, we are sorry. Just saying sorry is not enough. The God of the Bible requires us to turn to him. Belief and repentance go hand in hand, they're the kind of flip side of the same coin. Um, not only do you, so, so if you believe, then you turn to trust someone. And if you repent, you turn away from, from your old way. The God of the Bible is calling us all today to turn from trusting in ourselves and to put our faith in Jesus. In the one where God has dealt with our sin. He's dealt with our rebellion against Him. When I first became a Christian, I repented. It's not that I just agreed with God. I actually said, I need to start walking your direction now. It's a shift from trusting myself to trusting Him. And what worries me is sometimes we tell people about, isn't God great? Everyone's like, yes, we think God's great. 
and we just continue walking in the same direction. God's an awesome God. I love He's great. We never say, turn. The God of the Bible says, trust me. Put your life in my hands. Stop navigating your own life and let me drive. If we are to see revival here in Auckland, we need to see people come and know this Jesus. Not only acknowledge him, but to turn to him. And then we kind of finish as we look at this last bit of Jonah. And we see the God who has amazing compassion. Do you see that in verse 10? God relented. He, he, he changed his mind. He examined his people. Not only just to say, oh, I can see them, but he looked at how they responded to his message. He wasn't just watching what they thought or said or sang, but what they did. He saw what they did, that they turned from their evil ways, that they had a changed lifestyle. And God relented. That actual Hebrew word originally is, is repent. God turned around. God went from going one direction, I'm going to wipe you out, to now, I won't. And that kind of should bring up problems for us, because like 2 Samuel says that God doesn't change, right? Is this some sort of fickle God we believe in? Some God who is like, can't make up his mind, I'm going to wipe you all out, and then suddenly, oh, okay, I won't now. Jonah wants to remind us that the God of the Bible changed his mind because he doesn't change. I'll say it again, the God of the Bible changed his mind because he doesn't change. His love for his people has always been there. He is a God who, who wills that all come back to him, who all recognize that we need that cancer cut out and trust him. Ezekiel 18.32, it's on the screen. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent and live. Or Ezekiel 33, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Are they not the words of a passionate God who loves his people so much that he's willing to hold back the floodgates of his wrath and fury for so long? That he's willing to send his own son to take the full wrath and fury of those floodgates. That when Jesus would die on that cross, he would face what we deserved. That dam of God's wrath was opened and poured out 2,000 years ago on Jesus Christ in our place so that we could walk free, so that we could turn from trusting ourselves and turn to trusting what Jesus did, trusting that God's anger and wrath was extinguished, trusting that the God of the Bible so passionately loves us and so passionately loves his world that he would send Jesus to take what we deserve. Friends, the God of Jonah, the God of this world, is an amazing God. He's an unlikely God. He's a God that when we turn our backs on Him, longs for us to come to Him. If you don't trust in Jesus here today, if you haven't yet come to the God of the Bible, for one, I want to show you that God is not a vengeful, angry God. But He loves us. But he will also give us what we ask for. If you want nothing to do with him, then Jesus' death will have nothing to do with us. So please hear the cry of the God who's in control of the world. He longs that no one die. 
but that you may turn and live. Come and check out the, the Jesus of the Bible and what he's done for us. And if you are a follower of Jesus, never forget the cost of your forgiveness. Those Ninevites, those ugly brutes who were just like us, they were forgiven because of Jesus. God's wrath was held back from them and poured out on Jesus. God has shown his mercy. When I reflect on the God of the Bible, surely there are more than 10,000 reasons to bless his name. Surely we can stand and go, wow, this God is just. He doesn't just kind of go, oh, it's all right, we're fine, I'll forget about it. He punishes people's right rebellion. He doesn't let the murderer get off. He doesn't let the liar get off. But he offers us that forgiveness. It makes me want to stand and sing. It makes me want to turn and continually turn and be captivated by this Jesus. It makes me want to speak to those around me. Not hiding the kind of truth of what, what's going on, but in love, sharing this passionate God with the world around me. It makes me want to pray. Pray to the God who is in control of all things, who with seven words can bring the most ugliest nation to their knees. I wonder this year, as we open church to the public, how many God will bring to repentance? How many He will convict of our rebellion against Him and continually turn us back to Jesus? What's amazing is we only need to be obedient messengers. We only need to speak the truth of the gospel and then pray like crazy to the God of the universe who longs all people will be saved. Why don't we pray that right now? Father God, you are an amazing God. You've shown your love to us so clearly and so deeply and so hugely in Jesus that you would pour out your anger that we rightly deserve on your son who never did anything wrong, that he would willingly die in our place, willingly take the, punish the punishment we deserve so that we can stand here forgiven. Lord, I confess that so often I don't let that sit on my heart. So often we just leave and thank you for what you've done, but just mosey on with life. Lord, grip us, we pray. By your Spirit, convict us of what you have done. Change us to be people that are so captivated by Jesus that we will helpfully and lovingly speak of your love in our own life, in the lives of those around us. That we would be brought to our knees, not only in repentance, but in prayer for this city. For Lord, we long that people come to know the passionate and loving God of the universe who has provided the free gift of salvation so that we can stand here and say thank you. Amen.